Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's event that sits part of our ongoing Work in Focus series. Today, focusing on the work Physical Energy by George Frederick Watts, who actually joins us here in the room in the corner, so he'll be listening in. Um, and this winter, the sculpture returns to the RA's courtyard, where it was first shown in 1904. To give today's talk, we welcome Dr. Nicholas Tromans, who has been the curator of Watts Gallery Artist Village since 2013. He is the author of several books on British art and is currently preparing, preparing an exhibition about the poet Christina Rossetti, opening at Watts Gallery in November 2018. So please join me in welcoming Nicholas Tromans. Thank you, uh, thank you very much, Amy. Uh, I'm going to start with some free PR. Uh, there's the Watts Gallery. Do um, please, as well as visiting the Royal Academy of Arts, come and visit us too. Uh, helpfully just down the um, A3 uh, from London, uh, and you turn left just at the village of Compton to get to us. That's not just a plug, because that place where the A3 turns off uh, on the way out of London going southwest to the village of Compton, just beyond Guildford, uh, only takes you about half an hour to drive there, uh, is in fact where the cast of physical energy, presently in the Annenberg courtyard, will, planning permission uh, allowing, end up. You, I hope, didn't fail to notice the horse on your way in, or on uh, previous recent visits, as Amy says, it's been there uh, in the courtyard since November. It's a new cast created for Watts Gallery Trust to commemorate the, cent the bicentenary of the birth of G.F. Watts, who, as Amy says, is, is observing proceedings uh, typically discreetly uh, in the corner over there. He was born in London in 1817, so last year we were commemorating his bicentenary, and as part of that celebration, we commissioned a new cast of his most ambitious sculpture, Physical Energy, and when it finally leaves this extraordinarily uh, prestigious and, um, I think, enormously successful uh, location at the Royal Academy, thank you for being its hosts, uh, it will come, as it were, to us again, uh, as I say, planning, permission, uh, permitting. What I want to do this morning, in the time we've got available, and as Amy says, definitely leaving time for questions and to kick around possibly some of the technical questions about creating the cast, or equally some of the thorny issues around the larger international cultural history of the work, uh, which have been contentious and certainly exciting. Uh, I'm going to talk about the history of the idea of the sculpture, uh, its previous manifestations, and end by saying a little bit about how this extraordinarily ambitious project was actually executed, as I say, with the wonderful people uh, from Pangolin Editions. Uh, uh, there is physical energy in the courtyard, a photograph which I have had no shame at all in pinching from the RA uh, President's, no, Secretary's blog, which if you don't read it, uh, I recommend Charles Sermon's blog about his wanderings around London and the sculptures and wonderful things you can uh, find there. The reason that it is here and not somewhere else as part of the bicentenary celebrations is that this is where the first cast of physical energy, uh, the one that you're, uh, you can see today in the courtyard is in fact the fourth cast. The first, the original first bronze casting of physical energy was exhibited as a contribution to the Royal Academy's summer exhibition 
1904. And I'm showing you here a wonderfully, I hope you agree, charismatic image of how art was hauled around in the Edwardian period. So that's 1904, the courtyard of the RA, a wonderful steam-driven Pickford's little locomotive truck uh, dragging physical energy on its trolley uh, into position. So the artist in question is George Frederick Watts, 1817 to 1904. So in fact, Watts died in July of 1904 whilst physical energy was on show in the courtyard of the Royal Academy. It was his valedictory piece. He had, in fact, been exhibiting at the Royal Academy since 1837, the year in which Victoria came to the throne, and he was still exhibiting there, and in this case his final exhibit, in 1904, three years after the old Queen's death. So that gives you some sense of the range of Watts' career. Uh, he had a 70-year career. He began as a teenager, making money out of portraits, and as we like to say at the Watts Gallery, he died with his boots on at 87, so a 70-year career. I'm showing you him here in a vigorous uh, middle age. Uh, Watts always talked about himself as if he was about to expire from the age of about 30 onwards. You know, he said, oh, my, my teeth have gone, my hair is gone, I won't be long for this world. Uh, and that was him at 30, and at 87 he was still up ladders creating Jaimunga sculpture. So, you know, we always have to bear in mind that artists seem to have been expected to be a little bit sort of world-weary at this period, even if in practice then they weren't. Uh, Watts always wished to bring his art to the public in a kind of uncompromising way. Uh, that was always his fundamental philosophy, like other great artists of the period, like, say, Edward Byrne Jones. He always felt that the oil painting on its own, gilded in a frame, in a fancy art gallery in St. James's, was not really art, it was just commodification. Uh, what he, Watts, really wanted to do was always to bring his art to a grand new public. And what's interesting about Watts is that every so often he did actually succeed in that. I'm showing you here on the left his time, death and judgment. Watts was never one to paint a picture called something like, you know, my favourite kitten or uh, my first communion. Uh, he preferred time, death, love, hope, death, justice, those kinds of huge themes. And on the right is a mosaic version of that same composition. The mosaic still survives, although not in its original position, erected in the 1880s on the front of the Church of St. Jude's on Commercial Road in Whitechapel. So imagining wandering around Jack the Ripper's uh, Whitehall, famously um, a grim, dark, dingy, dangerous, ugly place. And there was a beautiful Venetian mosaic of time, death, and judgment, a quite extraordinary uh, intervention into the urban streetscape. And this was always Watts' great ambition, uh, an ambition that he had begun very early in life. I mentioned earlier just how very uh, young he was when he became a professional artist. And uh, this is his uh, rather dashing, charming self-portrait uh, at the age of just 17, when, as I say, he was already hard at work as a professional romantic uh, artist. And at the very beginning of his career, Watts was in fact not a painter, uh, but a sculptor. He didn't make this, of course. This is a, a cheap and cheerful plaster cast after the Elgin marbles, after the Parthenon frieze, the Panathenaic uh, procession. Uh, it's a cast that Watts himself owned, uh, and which is today in the sculpture gallery at uh, the Watts Gallery. And there, in fact, also, uh, you can see clearly having pride of place, is the plaster model for physical energy from which all the casts have been taken since the completion of that plaster model, if indeed it ever can be said to have been, uh, strictly speaking, completed. More on that in a second. But in 
uh, the Watts Gallery Sculpture Gallery, there are all kinds of uh, fragments and bits and pieces of sculpture that hint at, but don't completely tell the story of Watts as a sculptor. At the age of just 10, he didn't really have much of a formal education, and to be totally frank, just between friends, I can tell you he never really learnt to write properly at all. Uh, and often his published writings are actually strictly those of his wife, or certainly she did a seriously uh, heavy editing job before they were allowed to become you know, grammatically acceptable. But if you wander around the Watts Gallery Sculpture Gallery, and I hope you all will or have done recently, then uh, you will notice all kinds of wonderful things about which we know almost nothing. This is the great next phase of Watts research. If any of you are aspiring postgraduate students or uh, know people who are looking for a subject for a PhD, uh, then I would recommend they come and talk to us because as we have celebrated the bicentenary and above all as we have had the new cast of physical energy made and we've had to dig deep into the questions of patina and a structure and gesso grosso and supports and all this kind of, you know, the real techie stuff of how do you make a sculpture, it became painfully clear, even to those of us who get, who get paid to know about this stuff, about George Frederick Watts's practice, that we know, as I say, very little. This is a beautiful alabaster head of Medusa in our collection. Some people will tell us it was made in Italy in the 1840s. Others will tell it was made in, in London in the 1870s. Others will say maybe somewhere in between. So you kind of get the idea of how extraordinary little we're able to say about it. Uh, Watts was actually a very prolific sculptor. He was very bad at finishing sculptures, which is not quite the same thing as not being a sculptor at all. He made many, many little uh, models, if that's the right word. Studies is perhaps the better word, out of clay, sometimes wax, and then he would have them cast in plaster. Uh, for instance, here, Love and Life. And you can see the sculptural version on the left. It's only about that big. Uh, and then the painting, the version of the Tate at least, Love and Life, is a huge, you know, whacking great <coughs> Watts allegory. The intriguing thing is that the sculptures were not independent works of art, they were studies for the painting. So Watts is making a study in three dimensions for a work that was to be executed in two. That is to say that he wished to ensure that the sculptural content, the sculptural character, uh, of his instincts in line and shape and form and curves would not be lost during their translation uh, into uh, the finished painting. In that, he is comparable actually primarily to someone like Degas, who, as you will know, famously made lots of beautiful little wax uh, models of dancers in order to help him with his pastels and paintings of uh, ballet dancers without intending those little waxes ever to be exhibited or cast, which of course they were, though, um, subsequently. What's liked also to paint, sorry, to sculpt on a huge scale when it was possible. Uh, this is his Tennyson, that's him working again at the age of about 85 up a ladder, uh, creating this huge sculpture of Tennyson, the poet, his friend, uh, and sometime Isle of Wight neighbour. Uh, it's uh, being uh, shot, the photograph has been shot, in a barn, a converted barn, on the edge of our estate, which just about still survives, although now in a neighbouring property, and um, an image which I'd like you just to bear in mind, because although it's um, faintly comic and faintly surreal, I think actually goes to the heart of Watts as a sculptor. This is a beautiful summer uh, photograph of the 80-something uh, uh, Watts looking very sprightly and dapper in his white sculptor's kit with his second wife, the designer and painter Mary Watts, Mary Seaton Watts, and the sculpture of Tennyson. And you can see that it's been wheeled out of its barn on a kind of trolley. Uh, quite what it was doing wheeled out, it's hard to say, because presumably Watts wasn't really going to work on it in its outdoors 
uh, um, uh, showing, uh, he needed his scaffolding inside the barn in order to get to it. It's almost as if it's part of the display. You wheel it out, you look at it, you have your photograph taken, you invite your guest, you walk around it, and then you wheel it back in and close it up and it's private again. Uh, all this taking place in the context of a private rural barn uh, and with a model made out of plaster and, and hemp rag mixed together to create uh, fatty plaster or gesso grosso, uh, as what's like to call it. He would always give things an Italian name if he had the option, not least himself. He was known to his friends, including his wife, always as Signor. Uh, but that idea of the sculpture being full of potential, uh, it's a model, it's an idea, it's not yet finished, it's not on public display, it's still his, and it's something over which he still maintains complete control, and there's a drama in its movement, I think is something very interesting about Watts. Uh, most people, uh, if asked what was Watts' most famous sculpture, at least after physical energy, would say Clytie, the beautiful uh, bust of a nymph, the nymph who was in love with the sun god and used to crane her neck every day to watch his trajectory across the heavens uh, to, just, to such an extent that, as Ovid relates in his Metamorphoses, the gods eventually took pity upon her and turned her into a sunflower so that her head would rise and fall, uh, echoing the movements of the sun each day. Watts exhibited this here at the Royal Academy, unfinished, in the late 1860s, and it, it was a bit like when Lord Leighton suddenly appeared as a sculptor himself. Uh, it was a bit um, of a mystery. How did this chap, who everybody thought was just a painter, suddenly manage to produce a beautiful marble bust of this degree of quality and finish? Well, the simple answer must be that he didn't. Of course, someone who was not trained as a sculptor could not, in fact, execute and certainly finish a marble of this quality. It must have been based on sketches and in three and two dimensions by a professional marble cutter. But who was that? We don't know. So even these fundamental questions about what's his most famous sculptures uh, remain unanswered. On the back of the great uh, uh, impact that Clytie had at the Royal Academy in the late 1860s, lots of people started to line up to commission Watts to make sculptures, which was usually a bad idea because Watts would usually take 10 or 20 years to finish a painting. So when it came to sculptures, uh, sadly, he was no different. Uh, and it was a bit like commissioning, again, Burn Jones, say, to commission your music room or your dining room. You, know, you really had to you know, brief your children to sort of be ready to complete the, complete the commission, because it ain't going to happen in your lifetime. So it was a, it was a little bit like that. So in 1870-ish, and again, I'm being frank and not pretending to know, because I don't know, and I, I defy anybody else to say that they really actually know either. In our collection is this uh, model, maquette, uh, plaster thing of a horse and rider, which we think is the very first three-dimensional sketch, which was shown to the uh, Duke of Westminster, uh, of course, then as now, the great landowner of England, a huge country pile uh, up in uh, Cheshire, Eaton Hall, which has gone through all kinds of uh, different architectural manifestations over the, uh, over the decades. And the Duke of Westminster uh, wanted a memorial to his semi-fictitious medieval, uh, uh, Norman ancestor, Hugh Lupus. Uh, and the story goes that Hugh uh, Lupus uh, uh, was uh, passionate about hunting and he was a gentleman of um, ambitious proportions and that therefore his nickname in Old English or Norman French was the Gros Veneur, the fat hunter, 
uh, which became Grosvenor, the Grosvenor estate, the family name of the Westminster dynasty. Now, like all great stories about the etymology of family name, names, it's probably, you know, it may or may not be true, uh, but it's certainly a very, very uh, good story. Uh, also, I just point out that in the uh, sculpture gallery at Watts are, are all kinds of interesting tools of the trade, uh, bits and fragments of sculptures that look as if they may have been made by Watts, and maybe, as it were, offcuts from sculptural projects, which, which are, in fact, very frequently things he would have just bought in an, an artist supplier to help him understand the muscles of the hand, the ear, uh, the foot, you know, those difficult things to paint into sculpt. Uh, and also uh, equine-related tools, such as an écorché, that is, a skinned horse, allowing the artist to understand more of the musculature of a horse. Uh, Watts was, again, in complete defiance of his self-image as someone about to expire through just sheer exhaustion and world-weariness. He was, in fact, a vigorous uh, horseman. He uh, liked to hunt. Uh, and even into deep old age, he was often to be found out, if not on a hunter, then at least on a pony. So he was someone who did know uh, horses. The Hugh Lupus or Grosvenor or Westminster Commission, uh, despite actually what I would say about things taking eons, uh, was commissioned in around 1870 and completed in 1884. Uh, there is the sculpture. It was not long ago uh, restored and given a clean and a new patina. And you can see that it shows this uh, rather, as I say, uh, large gentleman, the kind of chap you probably wouldn't want to get into a legal, let alone military, encounter with, uh, <coughs> uh, out with his falcon, uh, hunting on this magnificent horse. And again, the question arises, and I don't believe it's ever been satisfactorily answered, who actually made this? Did Watts really do it single-handedly when he wasn't painting in the evenings? No. He must have had uh, proper assistance from professional sculptors to actually uh, get it uh, completed. There was a full-scale plaster model, again, for this huge way over life-size uh, object. Sadly, that original plaster died in, actually rather romantically, the Crystal Palace fire in the uh, 1930s. As Watts reached the end of this commission for uh, Eaton Hall, for the Grosvenor family, uh, in 1883-84, when the sculpture was being cast and installed, he decided that he was going to do it again uh, but that he was going to do it this time not as a monument to any individual, but to a principle or to an idea, uh, a way of thinking, a, a mode of working, which, as I suggest, uh, was already his default uh, approach to making images. And I've got a, now a, a sequence of images, which I hope you'll find, again, rather in, intriguing, charismatic, from the Watts Gallery archive, taken uh, during the 1880s, possibly into the early 1890s, when Watts was working on the plaster model, again, made out of this thing that he called gesso grosso, a mixture of pl plaster and rag, which meant that you could mould it with your hands. You could take a great big dollop of it and sort of go <laughs> onto the carcass of the horse and then squidge it around. But that when it dried, uh, it was because it was almost like paper in the sense that it was held together with, with, with rag strands, you could saw it and cut it off. And then if you were clever, I guess you could wet it and soak it and make it malleable again and stick it back on again. Now, this is very clever. But for an artist like Watts, who had a terrible temptation to keep changing his mind and to keep going back to things, uh, it was actually a bit of a disaster from the point of view of the efficacy of completing the work. It was not commissioned. So in contrast to the Grosvenor Hugh Lupus, which was commissioned not just by anyone but by the Duke of Westminster, so you, know, you imagine you at least want to try to please him, uh, this, the next stage, was going to be the next idea, the next um, manifestation of the idea, was something entirely of Watts' own. 
He talked originally about it being a monument to the human instinct to achieve the still unachieved in the physical realm, which, like so much of Watts' writings, is, is only just grammatical, let alone comprehensible. Um, what, he, what he wanted to achieve, I think, was just as he would seek in some of his pictures to give a physical form to a principle of human experience, such as hope, love, life, death, justice, he felt that the physical energy of the body, the idea that you, know, you get up in the morning and you start doing things, it's probably about 11 o'clock or coffee time before you've started to think why you're doing it. Uh, you know, there's a kind of instinct in the body that keeps you going forwards, at least on a good day. Uh, and, and, and this is what he was, I think, trying to capture. He did have one idea, which I don't think ever went anywhere, which was that he would inscribe uh, around the base of the sculpture, names of the great empire builders of history, Genghis Khan, Tamburlaine, etc., Muhammad perhaps, people who had started with an idea, built a following, built a nation, and then had massively expanded. Um, in other words, it would have been, uh, in terms of that attempt to summarize a whole history of a human principle, something comparable to his uh, extraordinarily ambitious and actually completed uh, fresco at Lincoln's Inn, the Great Hall at Lincoln's Inn of the 1850s, the law givers, which uh, is a quite astonishing thing. If you ever get the chance to go and see it in the flesh, do, because it's really quite spectacular. Photographs find it hard to do, to do justice, but it really is a wonderful thing. And it is that, that, that most um, satisfying thing, a genuine piece of multicultural British history, because here you have, in the law givers, the great legal minds and the great um, estate builders of history, going all the way back to Moses, but also including Confucius and figures from Asia, figures from Africa. Uh, the, the Europeans are also there, but not necessarily much more prominent uh, than figures from other cultures. And it also includes what I believe to be the only painted figure of Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, in the whole of modern British art. By modern, I mean post-medieval. If anyone can contradict me on that, I would love to know but uh, Muhammad is actually in there. So um, when we come, as we will in a little bit, to talk about Cecil Rhodes and the British Empire, we must bear in mind that Watts was very aware of the larger history of empire building uh, and of the rise and fall of empires through history. But back to the pretty pictures of uh, Watts at work. So here you see Watts at work. Now, the timing is important here. Um, I won't give you a whole slab of, of biography, but the essential point is that Watts lived in Kensington for pretty much all his life, all his adult life, most, well, the great majority of it. Uh, first of all, for 25 years as a guest in Little Holland House, the Dower House within the grounds of Holland House. And when that was demolished in the 1870s to make room for beautiful new grand residences, not least Melbury Road, uh, where all those great big houses where pop stars and rock stars live today, but in, originally where lots of artists lived, um, Watts bought one of those new houses so that actually, so as it were, the coordinates of where he was living hadn't changed very much, even though the old house had been demolished uh, and his new house had been built. But with the new house, which he called Little Holland House, again, in, in recognition of the place where he'd spent so many happy years, he had his own sculpture studio. So this was really a great incentive for him to upgrade and really uh, do more. And what you're looking at here are a series of photographs, again, like the Tennyson, which was uh, executed at Compton, near where the Watts Gallery is now. So this is now back in London. Watts would trolley out the sculpture of physical energy, putter on it, uh, chop one of the legs off, uh, and then sometimes put it back on again. 
Uh, and Watts's second wife is often being criticised for being sort of um, uncritically hagiographic in regard to her attitude towards her husband and, and, and in the biography she, the three-volume biography she wrote of him in, uh, on him in 1912. But even she got fed up with this and thought, for goodness sake, you know, when will you finish this flipping horse? Um, and uh, one, uh, on one occasion, she actually sort of confronted him in a gentle way and said, why have you taken off that the horse's front legs and reposition them in this way, because now that means you're going to have to change the rider, because the rider's position won't go with the new configuration of the legs. And he said, oh, don't worry, Mary, it's only temporary. I'll put them all back as they were later. So um, it's almost as if he wanted to capture a kind of extremely slow canter, you know, uh, have these photographs taken at different points of the horse. Uh, um, each year, the horse would move ever so slightly different. So if you lined up the images, um, sort of Edward Mybridge style, over 50 years, you would get a, eventually get a canter. Uh, and, and that sounds slightly flippant, but uh, it's worth pointing that sense of uh, extremely slow evolution out, because as the years went by, and this is typical of what's not only does the title change, and he eventually comes to call the horse physical energy, he also starts to talk about it less as a monument to specific uh, human uh, uh, achievements in the past, and more about something even more abstract, which is the way that the human body uh, and the human spirit or human physical energy was part of a larger structure of energy uh, uh, infiltrating and structuring the whole universe. So he starts to talk about the horse and the rider's limbs as being like the rocks uh, moving underneath our, our feet over the eons, uh, like the mountains rising and falling, like the universe as a whole. So in the older he gets, uh, Watts becomes more and more abstract. He did have an assistant, who you can see there, the, um, the plucky Mr. Thompson, uh, who helped him uh, throughout. And again, you can see that, that, that in utter defiance, of, of, again, of his, um, uh, his literary self-image that he projects in his letters of someone who's uh, to repeat myself, you know, about to just collapse through, through old age. I mean, there he is, jogging up these ladders, uh, uh, in, well into his 70s and then later into his, into his 80s. You can also get a sense of how uh, the structure of the horse worked with a kind of armature inside it to hold the fundamental structure together and then the limbs could be removed and put back in different locations. So Watts worked on the, the plaster for many years, uh, beginning in about 1883, 84, uh, by about 1890 or so, we don't know exactly, I don't think, when this rather beautiful photograph of the, the still um, dapper and vigorous 70-something Watts was taken in his garden uh, on Melbury Road with these beautiful lilies in the foreground and the evidently pretty much completed physical energy in the background, he doesn't seem still to have had much sense of urgency about doing anything with it for the very good reason is that he didn't really have a plan uh, of, of what to do with it. At one point in the 1990s, Millet, the, the great pre-Raphaelite, said to him in his um, uh, uh, you know, famously jovial, old boy, clubbable way, come on, George, cast the bloody thing, you know, have it done, let's, it's ready to go, let's do it, let's cast it, we'll find somewhere in London, it can be done, it can be a public piece of sculpture. Uh, but Watts uh, was not someone to be directed, usually at least, in that way, and on uh, it lingered. And at that point, I will just go back to this point about potential energy, you know, the idea that uh, something had, if it were a plaster, if it were a maquette, it has that sense of potential energy to become something in the future, and I think this again is an unexplored area of Watts uh, as a sculptor. Certainly it's an, it's an underexplored area of physical energy. How does his concept of physical energy as an idea in his mind 
How does that connect to contemporary notions of science? Well, I absolutely do not pretend to be a historian of science, but I do know enough that, uh, to say that during the period of gestation of uh, physical energy and just before was a great era, of course, in physics, not least in Scotland, where you have you know, the great North British scientists, in fact, inventing uh, the idea of potential energy, giving Aristotle's old philosophical concepts of potential and actual energy new underpinnings in uh, modern science. So surely that sense of, of, of what could be the idea of something, an object, a human body, uh, or a thing, uh, containing energy for the future, energy not yet expended, uh, I think is terribly important for uh, understanding the sculpture if we accept that it does not have one meaning, that because it had a long gestation, because Watts always held to himself, as it were, his intellectual copyright to such an extent that he felt able to reassign meaning during the gestation and long evolution of a work, or indeed when he repeated it in a different format or in a different version, uh, then it's always going to be wrong to say, well, uh, the painting means X. It's meant to have and can embody uh, different meanings. And I'll just show you this rather lovely slide, rather gratuitously. Here's Watts as a sort of very wise old man. Uh, uh, he, he never liked wearing suits or modern Victorian clothes. So when the University of Oxford gave him an honorary degree and he was able to wear the Oxford robes, he was in his element and liked to have himself photographed here. Uh, at Limner's Lease, his house at Compton, next door to where the Watts Gallery is now, uh, next to a Della Robia Roundel, which we've never been able to trace, given to him by a friend who'd come back from... Um, Florence. So uh, the point of that slide, I guess, is to suggest that Watts was entering what had to be surely the last few years of his life uh, into his 80s, uh, yet still with physical energy just sitting in the shed. Enter Cecil Rhodes. Now, um, Rhodes is uh, a much talked about figure these days. The uh, Rhodes must fall campaigns in Cape Town and in Oxford have brought him back to our attention and he, his case has become the archetype of the great cultural debate of our time around sculpture, which is that uh, do you take down the sculpture when you find that the person being commemorated is no longer welcome in the public sphere as a hero and as a builder of the society that you yourself today uh, wish to or do in fact feel part of? Uh, Rhodes was famously nothing if not self-confident and in 1898, he pretty much walked into Watts' London house, which was fair enough because it was open to the public, and pretty much, and I'm shorthanding, said to him, here I am, how about my portrait for your Hall of Fame, which is a whole other wing of Watts' practice we haven't had a chance to talk about, but Watts was the great portraitist of the Victorian period. Uh, he appointed himself, in effect, unofficial portraitist to the National Portrait Gallery, ensuring that the great likenesses of his contemporaries, all of the men, that's another subject for debate, uh, should be captured for the Portrait Gallery. The Portrait Gallery was painfully aware, uh, and had been since, it, since its inception in the 1850s, that there were huge gaps, that you know, they had all the portraits they could ever want of the courtiers of Henry VIII, but where were the great portraits of Shakespeare? Uh, where were the great portraits of Marlowe? Where were the great portraits uh, uh, of, of the intellectuals of the past? They didn't exist. So what set about making sure that the same complaint would not be held in the future retrospectively about his own period and set about making sure that the great men, and it was men, uh, should be commemorated. And so Rhodes invited himself in and said, well, things about time you did me. Uh, Watts was not massively keen to start with and his wife, Mary Watts, was absolutely antipathetic 
Mary Watts was determined not to like this man whose reputation as a bully uh, and as someone who forced through British power against the will of just about anybody else had the liberal uh, half of British society, not just the liberal elite, um, up in arms. And uh, the controversial stature of Rhodes is not a modern thing. He was hugely controversial in his own day, and his obituaries after his early death in 1902 are completely split between those who think of him as the hero of empire and those who think of him as a, as a murderer. So we haven't perhaps changed massively in the different ways that he's been approached. Now, the crucial point for Watts is that, that Rhodes immediately latches onto uh, physical energy and thinks, wouldn't it make, wouldn't physical energy, if cast, make a wonderful kind of terminus to the great Cape to Cairo Railway, which was the ultimate emblematic um, uh, hubristic uh, ambition of Rhodes to construct, well, it doesn't need spelling out, the, the, the railway that would connect all of Africa from its northern to its southern tips, all of it unifying, unified under uh, British dominion. And that idea, so simple, so powerful, so if you like that kind of thing, so, so, so beautiful in its simplicity and uh, drama, uh, is suggested by this cover of actually a piece of piano music, a song, a march, the Cape, the Cape to Cairo march, uh, with the portrait of Rhodes in the um, bottom uh, left. So this was uh, uh, Rhodes' idea, but he died, as I say, in 1902, before uh, that became uh, a possibility. Rhodes died, as I just mentioned, young. He was 48, uh, which is uh, no age to die. Uh, and his achievement, if that's what it was, uh, or his activities were seen to be all the more extraordinary in that they had been accomplished in such uh, a short time. And when people, of course, do die young, then the, the reaction and the outpouring of feeling, positive or negative, uh, and the shock is all the stronger. And questions of how to commemorate uh, Rhodes uh, were very quickly in public conversation immediately following his death uh, in 1902. Um, on the left, I'm showing you how perhaps some uh, a rather sort of witty person in England might have thought about the Cape to Cairo Railroad. Uh, the cartoon on the left is from Punch, of course, and it's by Lindley Sambourne, another Kensington resident. You can go and visit the Lindley Sambourne House just down the road from the, the, uh, the Leighton House Museum. And what Lindley Sambourne imagines is um, uh, in Punch's way, can I say this? I think I'm going to. In Punch's slightly snobby way, uh, they, they imagine, isn't it kind of absurd that someone so ordinary as Rhodes, and Rhodes was a famously ordinary looking chap, he looked like a bank manager or an accountant, and he was not Richard Burton of, 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 of Africa, he was not this sort of huge warrior, sort of handsome chap with scars, he was a sort of um, businessman. Uh, and uh, Lindy Samuel just imagines this rather sort of um, modest looking chap straddling the planet. On the right, uh, rather more sobering, is a, uh, a caricature from the French um, anarchist leading left-wing leaning, or very left-wing leaning, uh, uh, satirical journal, La Sieto Beur, which was the kind of Charlie Hebdo of its day, and it proposes its own monument to Rhodes, and I don't think I need to spell that out uh, in terms of its iconography, a, a, a pyramid of the bones and skulls of those who'd stood in Rhodes' way. The upshot of the death of Rhodes in relation to Watts was the supporters and admirers of Rhodes, that is to say very senior, uh, usually titled gentlemen who were connected 
as senior managers of the empire, to put it rather crudely, primarily Lord Grey, not the Lord Grey of First World War fame, but the Lord Grey who was later to become Governor General of Canada. Um, uh, a group of lords thought that what was obviously needed here was to kill two birds with one stone, on one hand to commemorate Rhodes with a fittingly grandiose sculpture, and on the other to finally get that flipping Watts to cast his physical energy. So uh, Watts was told, effectively, that this was what was going to happen. And of course, when the various governor generals of the empire uh, and senior figures from government tell you that they've got a plan at their own cost to cast your life's work in sculpture, then it's pretty hard to say no. To be fair, Watts almost did say no, I think. He did his best, usually, to wiggle out of anything grand and dramatic that might sweep him up into directions uh, of which he was not himself uh, the master, but in 1902, the, the, the model, the plaster, was taken from Kensington to, uh, not far, down to Fulham, to Parsons Green, to Parlanti's foundry, and there its casting became um, a story in its own right. This is the Illustrated <coughs> London News from 1903, in which it was claimed, at least you can just about see at the top of the slide if you squint, the largest sculpture ever cast in England. Um, and it was indeed a huge undertaking, a lost wax, which I won't seek to describe in words. We might come back to that in a, in a short while when I've finished to talk about the, 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 the final cast that's on display here. But the idea was, and again, you can just about make it out at the bottom of the slide, the idea was that the sculpture would go to Rhodes's grave in the Metopo Hills in what is now Zimbabwe, in what was then, of course, Rhodesia, named after Rhodes. Uh, that was the idea. So uh, there is the sculpture. It was then, though, brought here. Uh, the idea of the same lords who had arranged the commissioning of the casting thought, uh, wouldn't it be a great idea if the sculpture could be shown to the British public before it's transported overseas to Africa? Um, and where better than the courtyard of the Royal Academy? The Royal Academy, of course, had been here since the 1860s. This would make a lot of sense. At that time, it was still a novelty for the courtyard to be used as part of the summer exhibition. In fact, I, as far as my own research has suggested, uh, and I would love to be told more about this, I understand the first time a sculpture was shown in the courtyard as part of the summer exhibition was in 1902, when Thomas Brock's uh, uh, sculpture of the Black Prince was, as it were, parked in the summer exhibition briefly before being taken up to Leeds, where it still stands. The same was true uh, in 1904. Um, the Royal Academy were effectively told that this was happening, uh, but Pointer, Edward Pointer, is he with us? I'm not sure he is. Edward Pointer, the then president of the Royal Academy, um, played quite a clever card. He said, well, we're not going to be told what we exhibit at the Royal Academy, even by the great and the good of the empire. But if Mr. Watts would like to submit the physical energy sculpture as a submission to the Royal Academy, which of course he's perfectly um, welcome to do. Watts was no longer a Royal Academician. He resigned his, uh, um, his, his, his membership, pleading old age, uh, when he turned 80 in 1897. But of course, he was absolutely a grand old man, the grand old man of British art, and no, no one was going to reject it. So there it goes, into the uh, courtyard, uh, and um, the, the, it's a, a beautiful, dramatic image. The problem, perhaps, and this was something we reverted to when we came to install the cast that's presently on show, is that the plinth faces due, well, I won't start guessing north and south, but points directly uh, through the arch into Piccadilly, which means that the rider looking and scanning the horizon 
is effectively looking to the left and towards where the motorbikes are now parked. Uh, as if, you know, his great ambition in life is to buy a Yamaha. But, um, but so that's when we came to install the, the forecast, uh, in fact, this is uh, the suggestion of my um, friend at uh, Neville Keaton Pictures, Tim Perbrick, who's here tonight, not tonight, this morning. Um, we, we angled the plinth so that the rider was looking out towards Kath Kitson and the, and the broader world, even beyond that. Uh, so the sculpture was taken out after the closing of the Royal Academy to South Africa, where it soon became clear that there was no way that that sculpture was going up the Matopo Hills. Uh, and instead, um, a much more um, a doable, from a logistical point of view, uh, plan was put into uh, a place whereby the sculpture of physical energy would form part of a larger uh, memorial to Rhodes, which would be installed right next to his official residence. Um, I won't try and pronounce it accurately in Afrikaans. Someone did explain to me the other day how to do it. But Grote Schuur, something like that, at the foot of Table Mountain overlooking Cape Town. This was the official uh, residence up until the 1980s, I understand, uh, in Cape Town of the President of the Republic of South Africa, uh, a place of great historical importance. Uh, the house itself, Grutescure, belonging to Rhodes, had been remodelled by the architect Herbert Baker in the 1890s, and it was Baker who was asked to come back to South Africa to design uh, the uh, Rhodes Memorial, eventually completed in 1911, uh, to which the uh, physical energy sculpture provides a kind of final point. If I just jump ahead, then there you can see pretty much what it still looks like. This is a photograph, I believe, taken in the 1930s, a very classical, very Edwardian, very imperial structure with a bust of Rhodes tucked away in the little temple at the top of 48 steps, each uh, well together representing the 48 years of uh, Rhodes's life. And then this sculpture represents almost the spirit of Rhodes, or as the inscription has it just beneath the sculpture, the genius or spirit of Rhodes which will be continued, perhaps still, by that railroad. And the sculpture looks along the line of, the of, of what would have been the railway, if indeed it had ever been completed, which of course uh, it was not. And I'll show you uh, a shot of how the Rhodes Memorial looks today in this extraordinary picturesque um, setting uh, within the complex known as the Rhodes Memorial uh, at Table Mountain in, in Cape Town. Actually, this took so long to make, as I say, it was only completed in 1911, that before the Rhodes Memorial was completed, a second cast of physical energy had been erected in uh, Kensington, uh, just up from the Albert Memorial. You can see the Albert Memorial in the background of this rather lovely old postcard. And it was erected here because this was very near to where Watts had spent his life. And a new cast was made. Um, I sh should have pointed out, although this gets fiddly, that in 1902-3, when the first cast was being made, after that cast had been completed, the model, the plaster model, was returned to Watts in Kensington, and he continued to fiddle about with it. Um, and it, as I say, he was actually working on that model in June 1904, when he caught a chill and died on the 1st of July. So the uh, cast in uh, uh, South Africa is of a model which was subsequently changed. So there are some small changes between the different casts, or at least between the first cast on one hand and the second, third, and fourth on the other. So there's the cast in uh, uh, Kensington Gardens. Then in 1914, 
a dinky little mini physical energy was made by uh, a reduction by Thomas Wren, who had been one of Mary Watts's accomplices in her endeavour, the Compton Potter, Potter's Arts Guild, a talented modeler, uh, and he um, created this uh, reduced version for the market, which sadly coincided uh, on its completion, we believe, with the beginning of the First World War. We think it was completed in about 1914, which is to say that therefore, you know, it was very poorly timed. And after the First World War, Watts's reputation, along with most Victorian artists, had gone into a kind of uh, kamikaze dive, uh, and nobody was very much interested in them. But again, an aspect of Watts's sculptural legacy that remains to be properly researched. There was a third cast, uh, created in 1959 by the British South African Company, uh, a cast that was going to be placed, well in fact was placed, in uh, Lusaka, the capital of northern Rhodesia, Zambia as it became. But again, the timing was terrible because the cast was unveiled by the Queen Mother in 1960 and almost immediately afterwards um, uh, northern Rhodesia became an independent state. Um, the sculpture was no longer welcome, it had to make the journey south, it was installed at Salisbury, as it was then known, uh, which of course in 1980 became the capital of uh, the newly independent Zimbabwe, and at that point, in, in a very kind of orderly way, the monuments to British imperial rule, um, sculptures of Rhodes and physical energy, this is the third cast, not to be confused with the one at Cape Town, uh, were moved from their sites in public spaces and placed in the, around the back of the National Archives in Harare. And this photograph was taken actually just about 10 days ago. Uh, so it's, it is still there, uh, rather in the manner of those places you may have visited in, uh, in the outskirts of cities, uh, capital cities of the former Soviet bloc, where after the fall of communism, the monuments to Lenin and Stalin were carefully removed, usually, and placed in kind of sculptural graveyards, places of great sort of uh, cultural uh, memory about which art historians have written uh, some rather interesting books. Now, how are we doing for time? It's about time for me to stop. Good. Just a couple more minutes, and I will tell you very, very quickly what we did next. So, um, 2017, what's his bicentenary? Let's think big. We thought, let's get a cast of physical energy. We'll just knock off a new bronze cast. Can't be that difficult. It's been done before. Uh, and we will place it at the edge of our estate on the A3 uh, so everyone can see it and it will be you know, a sort of great sort of sculpture that will be a bit like the Angel of the North, something, something like that. Suitably kind of grandiose megalomanic plans to mark the bicentenary uh, of G.F. Watts. Uh, we put together a fantastic team. Uh, we work, we've been working with Neville Keating Pictures who are based just across the road here of course and Pangolin Editions, the, the, the go-to casters for monumental bronzes in Britain. Uh, and down came their people, uh, promptly started doing rather terrifying things to our precious model. We had to take all kinds of very careful precautions you can imagine and take the advice of some uh, uh, a sequence of sculpture conservatives to make sure we were making the minimum intervention possible. Uh, the, uh, to cut a long story short, the, the, the mould is made in rubber, which is applied in an aerosol form. Then a series of resin sheets are placed on top of that in order to hold it in place which solidifies into something incredibly hard, a bit like a kind of, imagine a canoe or something like that, made out of fiberglass, that kind of thing. It's called a jacket, that's the technical term. And you can see the whole thing is built up like a sort of suit of armor around the uh, plaster. Here are the guys from Pangolin, very, very carefully applying the jacket to the underbelly of the horse. Then we had to build scaffolding to get to the upper part. There's a rather excited former colleague of mine. 
Uh, she left soon afterwards to go to Canada. Uh, Ashley, uh, looking at uh, the upper part of the, the horseman, he's just about to have his jacket and mole applied. Uh, and then after that, oh, let me just show you this one. I'm very clumsy with the points, I'm sorry. There we go, I rather love that one. That's like something from the Lord of the Rings, isn't it? This sort of ancient rider uh, covered in his resin jacket, about to be reborn, chrysalis style. Uh, and then off the thing went to Pangolin, and we went down to Pangolin there in Gloucestershire, and if you ever need a four meter tall sculpture casting, they're your guys, I can recommend them. Uh, uh, and there they took us through and explained to us how the lost cast lost wax casting method was done today, and I still don't understand. I mean, I mean, they did show us, and we saw it happening. It's still very hard to understand, but essentially, the, uh, uh, the, the jacket comes apart into about 50 different pieces, each piece using the, the very um, um, supple and very responsive rubber uh, inner mold coating uh, can be used to uh, form a sequence of, of 50 different sections, which are then cast using bronze, of course, uh, and using this enormously elaborate system of sprues, this is what you call the sprue system, these lovely kind of ventricles through which the molten metal is poured. And the result being that you have these fantastic sort of things looking like um, sort of science fiction insects crawling around like sort of dying wood lice uh, around the floor of the sculpture gallery, quite, um, of, the, of, the, of the sculpture workshop at Pangolin, quite astonishing things to see. And they're all labeled each individually so that you know, when the jigs always put back together again, people know what the hell they're doing. So this piece you can just about make out is rather wonderfully labeled belly four. Uh, in case somebody should try to position it somewhere else. I show you that, it's a beautiful photograph. It looks uh, like an aerial photograph that an archaeologist might take um, of a battlefield or of an ancient civilization. In fact, that just shows the inside of one of the, the metal-finished um, uh, bronze sections, showing all the points at which the sprues were connected, uh, all the various stages leaving their trace. It's almost a shame that one can't see inside the sculpture. Uh, to get a sense of that fantastic process it went through. Uh, and because we were using this incredibly responsive, sensitive rubber uh, coating, uh, it did mean that we were able to pick up from the model the real fingerprints of the artist, this wonderful sort of lunar surface that you wish to uh, communicate. Here it is gradually being welded together until it's ready to come and then, a very memorable moment, turning up here, 7 o'clock, on a very frosty um, November morning with a few um, friends from the Watts Gallery. We saw it uh, trundle along to meet its dry stone walled plinth to create what you can see uh, there. Um, the sculpture comes out of the Royal Academy, as I say, uh, in the first week of April. We may not be completely ready to receive it at the Watts Gallery at that point, but planning permission allowing, it will go up at some point uh, later this year, uh, where we hope that its meaning, without losing or denying its historical connections to empire, will stand again above all and firstly for what Watts originally intended it to be, which was an emblem of the human spirit, uh, a hugely ambitious, uh, image of human confidence, but at the same time a wonderfully humble image, uh, actually, I would finally conclude, of seeing all of human effort as being part of those larger structures, those physical properties of the universe we all have to share. Thank you.
Very interesting. Thank you. Great. Several times. Um, where is the mosaic now that was in front of the church? Center point in the central town. At the foot of center point, you, you can walk past it. The beautiful 18th century church of St. Giles. It's in there. And we almost borrowed it last year, but it turned out to be too expensive. It's, it's quite a thing. Hello, my name's Elina. Lovely talk, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. I, I swim in Hyde Park every day and I go past it. And, ah. uh, it's always a point of reference for me, just to say I'm going to spend some physical energy. <laughs> so thank you very much for this talk. Um, and one of the reasons I came to hear it. But um, I'm also very interested on the reasons or the issues you talked about him being really passionate about. And I think you said hope, love, justice. Could you talk a bit more about that and how that sort of was blended into his work? Gosh, that's a big one. Um, well, Watts talked about himself as being a philosopher who happened to paint. Uh, he talked about himself as being a, a, someone who wished to express the principles of his age. Uh, and when he looked at his age, he decided that what was really important about his age was not wealth and railways and you know, the telegraph and all those things that most people would be proud of in the 19th century. What he felt was really special about the some of the people that he knew and um, admired was that they had taken it upon themselves to ask that question, to ask what is permanent in, Brit in, in, in British history, but also in human history. What, is, what are the things that keep you going through the age of mass industrialization, urbanization? And he came to the conclusion that those things were those human constants. So he set himself the task of trying to embody those principles because he felt that they were uh, under threat, that they were in danger of being forgotten, and that he felt that uh, in public spaces in particular, uh, being reminded of your fundamental human identity and your human duties was, was what public art should be. And, it, and so instead of being you know, a monument of Field Marshal X or um, you know, famous martyr Y, uh, that public art should embody something which was public, i.e. shared, i.e. Um, communal, and that he felt that those values uh, were, 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 were the way to go. And of course, that made him very popular amongst the political uh, elite, they felt that he, he was a man who had come up with an answer of what public sculpture should look like. Because then as now, we, they, they were squeamish about putting up sculptures to individuals. They felt, well, why him and not him? And uh, we seem to not have enough Scots, or we don't have enough women, or so-and-so is underrepresented and so-and-so is overrepresented. You know, if, you, if you go for individuals, you're going to cause offence uh, then as now. And um, what seemed to have come up with an answer? So that was his thinking. Thank you, that's really, really interesting. And actually, that reminds me of Mark Rothko's own journey. Uh, I don't know if you've read the manuscript, uh -huh. Philosophy as a Way of uh, Artist Philosophy. Not and for he, a long time. <laughs> it, um, it's been edited by his son, and he exactly set out with the same search. Okay. Very, very different, obviously, outputs. But, uh, really well, interesting. In, interesting comparison. Um, one artist in a few years ago made an interesting comparison between the Rothko room, as it used to exist at what was the Tate Gallery, uh, where you'll remember, many of us will remember, one used to go and you, you, you stopped talking when you went into the Rothko room, you were quiet, it felt like a chapel. Uh, and people have compared the Watts room, because there was a room devoted to Watts at the Tate from 1897, its inception, all the way down to the um, 1930s. So that's an interesting comparison. Just for those who haven't gone to the Watts Gallery, it's an amazing day. Uh, full of, of surprises throughout the entire complex because it's not just the, the gallery, it's a complex of buildings and a, an entire representation of Watts, 
and his wife's view of art. The chapel is astounding. One comment I wanted to make is my first view of physical energy was in fact a cast at uh -huh. the Watts Gallery uh, uh -huh. last year. And in seeing the, the new cast out in the courtyard, I was surprised at how the cast in fact conveyed a little bit more of this, this representation of energy and movement uh -huh. through the play of light and shadow that the, the cast statues simply can't replicate. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could comment on that. So, so you, you think it looks better in bronze than it does in plaster? No, better in plaster. Okay, 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 gosh. Well, I mean, that's, that's going to have to come down to individual aesthetics. I mean, I have to say that when I saw the new cast, uh, I was thrilled and I, and I really felt that it just had, oh gosh, what's the word, an, aust an austerity, a, a weight, a gravitas that the plaster can't have. I mean, the, the plaster has a fragility now, having dried out a bit over the last hundred and whatever years, 140 years, gosh, since it was started. I mean, it's a very vulnerable thing. It's a, a beautiful idea that's about to crumble. So it has its aesthetic, um, which is very different, I think, to the sturdier um, nobility of the, of the bronze. I mean, you know, they're two very different objects. And I think you're right to point out that a, there is a difference, a massive difference. And I, as I was saying earlier, I do think that Watts himself felt that. And he was very interested in the sense of potential energy that, that a plaster model might have before it's resolved into the final metal product. Are we doing Hi, Nick, uh, Tim Purbrick from Neville Keaton. Hello, Just Tim. to uh, let everyone know there are two further casts which will be for sale um, <laughs> a, uh, to raise funds for the Watts Gallery. Um, so uh, if you're interested, please do come and see Very reasonable. That's <laughs> um, no, a good point. If you go and look at the sculpture in the Annenberg Courtyard, you'll see that on the inscription on the plinth it says one of three. It's an addition of three. So there are two potential uh, further uh, horses for your uh, enjoyment. The, the other interesting aspects are that uh, this cast is two and a half tons and the original casts were five tons or more. So the modern casting techniques have meant that it can significantly reduce the weight of the sculpture. And it's sitting there in that photograph on 20 tons of Westmoreland green slate and breeze blocks inside. And Another interesting aspect is that this, those two parts of this sculpture bring together two patronages of the, His Royal Highness Prince of Wales, who is patron of the Drystone Walling Association, and also patron of the Limner's Lease um, Project Appeal, which raises funds for the Watts Gallery. But my question Nick, is, <laughs> um, Watts uh, appeared to live quite a good lifestyle, and yet yeah. he did many of these projects for free. Yeah. Uh, the, the artwork that he produced, yeah. uh, the Hugh Loopers, and so well, How did he fund himself through his rather expensive lifestyle as an artist? Okay, so in summary, he, he did not in fact have many outgoings. Uh, he, 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 throughout his life, he supported his, his modest artisan class family that he'd come from. He, he, he bunged them a few shillings each, 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 each month or so. He didn't have children. Uh, he didn't, um, until he was well over six, well, about 60, own his own home. So, I mean, he was not extravagant. Um, and he made money from portraiture. Uh, he was also part of a, w a way of making money for elite artists, which actually um, is still the case today, I, I think, which is that you are savvy enough to know that what counts is getting your name out there. And once your name's out there, it's a brand. And once you've achieved that, you can, 
you can coin it in. I don't mean to be cynical about in this home of artists, I really don't. But I mean, that is a strategy that artists follow, and they're, and they're intelligent to do so. I mean, I did my PhD on an artist called David Wilkie, um, Royal Academy, uh, um, who worked in the early 19th century, and he was always trying to, 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 to um, convince patrons to pay him less, because he kind of knew two things. First, that if he could get his pictures into the homes and the galleries of the great and the good, then the commissions would come in, and indeed they did. And also, there was a tradition amongst um, high-minded artists and aristocratic patrons that art was not something that you transacted like you would do a wallpaper or a carpet. It was something more like poetry or commissioning, um, involving yourself in philanthropy. And so often the way it would work is there would be a nominal, I say often, I'm talking about an elite category of artists, there would be a nominal um, amount of money that changes hands, but then subsequently there would be a gift. And both patron and artist liked the mutual magnanimity that that projected. The artist could say, well, I'm going to just give it, give it to you, just, just take it, just take it. And then the, the grand seigneur could say, I hereby bestow 500 guineas upon you. Not because of a contract, not because I've said I would, not because it's worth it on the market, just because I feel like giving you 500 guineas, because I can, and I'm one of them. So there was, a, there was a, quite a bit of play-acting of, of feudal, feudal relations here. I mean, a, the beautiful example, sorry, I'll just tell you because it's a picturesque story, one sentence. When Watts painted the um, mural at Lincoln's Inn, which took him seven, eight, nine years, he refused to be paid for it. Great, so you know, a decade of work not getting paid. But then, of course, when he finished it, the benches of Lincoln's Inn sent him um, 500 gold sovereigns in a beautiful leather bag. Uh, just, that's just a little token of their appreciation. So, of course, he got paid, but he just got paid in a different kind of way. I just wonder when Plaster first arrived in Compton and whether it stayed there ever since, and does it go outside as Watts would have done uh, for its annual outing? Uh, good, 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 good question. Um, when Watts died in the summer of 1904, Mary Watts, his much younger second wife, uh, was, was, was not a Londoner, she never liked London, and she sold the London house very, very quickly and closed it down. So the sculpture uh, studio at London, which contained uh, physical energy and everything else, was brought to, to Compton at that point, so 1904, and she had a special gallery built for it the following year. It has never left that gallery, strictly speaking, since. Um, there was a couple of shady moments. One was in 1959 when it was cast again for the British South African Company and taken out to Lusaka. That's rather mysterious how that was affected, but it must have left the gallery at least gone outside in some way. Sadly, although we do have the whole trolley and the railway tracks and the winch and the whole gubbins ready to go, we're not allowed to. Health and, health and blooming safety in it. So, um, yeah, the sculpture conservatives say it might crack and fall and kill people, which, to be fair, is quite serious from a health and safety point of view. So, you know, we, 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 we don't allow it. Um, and again, folk myth attaches to this. Some people claim they remember seeing it, and then, but when they're challenged, they can't quite remember when. You know, they can't quite remember seeing when, when it would have wheeled out. But, I mean, yeah, uh, I, I, it would be great to see again. But after having just put the horse through the process of being, of being cast with all the rubber and the resin, and the, we, I, I don't feel, I think I feel like to leave it, leave it for a few more years. Let somebody else have a go in the future. Also, apparently if it rains, it melts. 
So you have to be pretty confident of your weather forecast. Thank you so much for your coming today and your um, we do have two more works in focus events taking place this month, so do come on our website um, and come along today. Uh, but please join me in thanking Nick for such a wonderful talk today. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.